This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. My name is uh, Shanto Iyengar. I am a faculty member in the Communication and Political Science Departments, and my role here today is simply to moderate what I hope will be an animated discussion on the current state of American politics. Uh, let me begin first by acknowledging the, the contributions of the McClatchy family uh, to the Department of Communication in general and this, sympo this symposium series in particular. This is the, the first uh, McClatchy colloquium since the death of Jim McClatchy, and I'd like to pay tribute to Jim's uh, long-standing support for journalism education at Stanford. I also want to acknowledge uh, the support of the Hurt, the Hearst Foundation uh, for supporting our efforts to uh, develop and expand the MA program in journalism. Uh, the credit for this event uh, should be uh, granted uh, to the appropriate uh, principals. Uh, the principal architects of today's event are Anne Grimes, uh, the Locay Visiting Professor of Journalism. Uh, Anne is sitting uh, right there. And uh, Jim Fishkin, who is chair of the Department of Communication, and Jim is, is uh, seated right over here. Uh, so any, any complaints about the composition of the panel can be directed accordingly. Uh, let me begin then by um, doing the, the introductions. It's a very distinguished panel, and those of you who uh, uh, read the, uh, the flyer or the program uh, may be surprised uh, to see that there are only uh, three uh, three panelists up here at the table. Uh, Rich Lowry, uh, our fourth panelist, uh, unfortunately uh, called in uh, uh, with a, a concussion. He suffered a concussion uh, on Monday. Now, as you know, uh, political commentary is a, a contact sport, <laughs> but in Rich's case, uh, I'm afraid it's a more mundane. Uh, he was uh, playing ice hockey without a helmet. <laughs> And so we will, uh, I have arranged, uh, each of the panelists has agreed to go past uh, their originally allocated time limit of 15 minutes, and they have now uh, been asked to speak for perhaps uh, between 15 and 20 minutes. Okay, so without further ado, uh, 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 Mo Arena, who will be leading off, is uh, a professor of political science and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. Uh, Mo came to Stanford from Harvard. His contributions to the study of American politics are, are way too uh, numerous for me to summarize or even mention here. I'll simply, I'll simply cite the fact that he is the author of the, the classic account of pocketbook uh, voting in America. Uh, today, he is going to share with us some insights from his most recent book, uh, Culture War, uh, The Myth of a Polarized America. Uh, John Harris, who will speak second, is the ex-national political editor, and ex as of just a few days ago. Is that right, John? Uh, he has uh, just uh, taken a new position uh, at uh, Al Britton Communications, where he will launch a new online uh, news venture. Uh, John, of course, is a frequent uh, participant uh, in various uh, uh, broadcast uh, news programs, including uh, Washington Week in Review. Uh, his, uh, his career at the Washington Post has been a long and distinguished one, including stints at the Richmond Bureau, uh, the Pentagon, and the White House. Uh, his, his most recent book is The Way to Win, uh, Taking the White House in 2008. And finally, uh, Gary Jacobson is a professor of political science at the University of California, San Diego. Uh, Gary is a recognized authority on congressional elections and the incumbency advantage. Uh, like Mo, uh, Gary's research has gravitated to questions of political polarization, 
and I expect uh, we will learn something about his most recent book this evening, uh, his most recent book being A Divider, Not a Uniter, uh, George W. Bush and the American People. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to uh, Mo Fiorina. Thank you, Shanto. I'm somewhat popular among the undergraduates because I never use the allotted time up in my lectures, and I probably won't use my allotted 15 or 20 minutes tonight. I'll cede it to my colleagues here. There is no question that American politics today is polarized, and far more polarized than it has been in at least two generations, and some would even say more polarized than it has been in the entire 20th century. And we can show that with a great deal of evidence. Uh, for example, uh, Congress is something we can describe very precisely. We can plot the positions of members of Congress, and we know that Republicans and Democrats are far more polarized and far more internally united than they were several generations ago. We have survey evidence on party activists, on convention delegates, on campaign contributors, uh, basically activists of various categories, all of which shows more polarization than there used to be and a high level of polarization. Then there's a wealth of anecdotal evidence of polarization, even on the state and local level, city councils, uh, boards, and so forth. Now, until recently, the common explanation for that level of polarization and the level of increased polarization has been that the American people are polarized. And so political elites are simply responding to the fact of a polarized population. And so after the 2000 elections, uh, Bush's chief election strategist, Matthew Dowd, explained that they hadn't tried to reach out to the center because there was no center. He said that 80 to 90 percent of the American people look at each other like they're on separate planets. And there have been pages and pages written and lots of words spilled over the airwaves about Karl Rove's base strategy, that, that the idea was to simply fire up the base, turn out the base, because there weren't any more any independents, any swing voters, any moderates that you could persuade. It was simply a matter of mobilization of the people already committed now. And this represents the triumph of a narrative that began in the early 1990s, and it's generally attributed to Pat Buchanan, who in a speech to the Republican National Convention in 1992 said that there was a religious war raging in the United States. It was a war, as he put it, for the soul of America. And in the 1990s, this narrative waxed and waned. In 1994, the year the Republicans took Congress, uh, this was called the year of the angry white male. White guys were supposedly angry about gays and guns and Hillary Clinton and affirmative action, immigration, all sorts of things. And of course, later in the decade, we had the Lewinsky uh, scandal, uh, a great deal of partisan polarization there. And then we had in 2000, the map, the classic red and blue map, which showed red state America arrayed against blue state America. The interpretation being that the, the God-fearing states of the Midwest and the South were now arrayed against the godless libertine states of the Northeast and California and so forth. And the, uh, the apogee in this sort of narrative came after the 2004 election on the side of the losers who were bitterly disappointed by the Kerry defeat. And Maureen Dowd in the New York Times uh, said that we had gone from postmodern times back to pre-modern times. And Gary Wills uh, wrote a piece called The End of the Enlightenment in which he compared red state voters to al-Qaeda and to Saddam Hussein's Sunni loyalists. And uh, Simon Shama, another professor, uh, wrote that the United States of America was now the divided states of America. We had divided between godly America and worldly America. And this division in the United States was comparable to the Sunni-Shia conflicts and the uh, Muslim-Hindu conflicts in India. A couple days later, David Broder wrote a column in which he said, get a break, people. Uh, that, uh, and, and essentially, we wrote a book at uh, this period, myself and two young assistants, uh, saying that this was simply false, this narrative, that it was highly inaccurate, 
that certainly Americans have political differences, but the differences among ordinary citizens in this country are far smaller uh, than differences among the political elite, really, as we call it, a pale reflection. The bulk of the American people remain centrist in their, uh, or in their positions on issues, and by that I don't mean necessarily that they are they thought about every issue and they said, I am a committed middle-of-the-roader, but they're ambivalent. They're both uh, pro-choice and pro-life. Uh, they want godly and worldly. Uh, they want to, they're opposed, they, they favor traditional marriage, but at the same time want gays to have equal rights. That on issue after issue, people, they don't want to embrace either extreme, they sort of end up uh, grasping towards some moderate middle-of-the-road position. Their priorities are different. That so much of our politics is about abortion, it's about gay rights, gun control, flag burning. Poll after poll shows that these issues rank right at the bottom of Americans' priorities that the, the kinds of issues that animate ordinary Americans are big issues that affect us all. They're Iraq, they're terrorism, Social Security, education, health care, these kinds of issues, the, the sorts of issues that take up so much of our politics regularly come in 15, 16, 17, 18 on lists of issue importance that the polls ask about. Furthermore, there's very little evidence that Americans are getting any more polarized. They look about the same as they did a generation ago. In fact, Gallup data, which asks people to sort of pick an ideological position, liberal, moderate, and conservative, find there are more moderates in the surveys t taken in the 2000s than there were in the 1970s, a generation ago, uh, when all the, before all this talk of, of polarization arose. Well, if the facts suggest that Americans still occupy much the same middle ground uh, and sort of temperamentally moderate stance that they always have, how does this picture of polarization arise? And we argue that there's a series of contributions. Uh, one is simply the fact that the parties have gotten better sorted uh, over the years. We have about the same number of Republicans and Democrats and liberals and conservatives as we've had for a long time. But it's more likely now that if you're a Democrat, you are a liberal. If you're a Republican, you are a conservative. And this is certainly true at the elite level, that especially in Congress, the Republicans have largely gotten rid of their northern liberals. The Democrats have largely gotten rid of the southern conservatives. It's much less true, although still true at the mass level. Uh, the process of sorting hasn't gone on nearly as much. For example, take an issue of abortion, which many people consider the, the touchstone issue of the culture wars. In 2004, among strong Republicans, not just Republicans in the electorate, among people who say, I am a strong Republican, one quarter said abortion should always be legal for any reason. And about 40% were clearly pro-choice, favoring uh, abortion with relatively few restrictions. Among Democrats uh, who have only in the last election or two decided they really might have to support a pro-choice candidate here and there, a pro-life candidate here and there in the country to win, uh, you have sort of a similar thing. One third of the Democrats, and uh, strong Democrats in the population, are clearly pro-life in their orientation. So even at the, an issue like this, the, the process of party sorting, although much greater than the past, is relatively less. So when you see partisan conflict, it's, it's clearly more striking now, but it doesn't mean a big shift in terms of overall orientations in the population. A second reason, I think a larger reason, for the, um, the belief in polarization is our friends in the media. Uh, not intentionally, of course, but the people in the media, and I'll exempt anybody who's currently here, uh, <laughs> but uh, other, other media people, uh, they basically talk to each other. Uh, they talk to political leaders uh, in their entourages, interest group leaders, uh, other pundits, and so forth. These are very unrepresentative people for the most part. I'd really like to see our national journalists spend a lot more time walking around the aisles of Walmarts and Safeways and auto parts stores and getting to know ordinary people. I'd like to see them go to Iowa, not during the pre primaries, but the year after the presidential election. I'd like to see them go to the New Hampshire diners the year after the New Hampshire primaries and talk to real people and sort of get a sense for the real America out there. 
And uh, I had an exchange with James Q. Wilson uh, a while back in Commentary Magazine. He's, Jim is skeptical of the, the data we've shown, although it's pretty incontrovertible. And he said, don't you listen to the blog, to the um, uh, talk radio. Don't you read the blogs? And I said, of course I don't. And you shouldn't either, unless you just want to be entertained. That even if you even if you filter out the wackos and just concentrate on the people who are relatively thoughtful, they are still far from representative of the American population in terms of their attitudes toward politics and the extremities of their views. You could really get a better cross section of the American people at a performance of World Wrestling Federation SmackDown than you could by sort of looking at the blogs and, and looking at the, uh, the talk radio. Uh, media values also, I think, contribute to it. That basically conflict and battles and wars, that's better copy than compromise, uh, than agreement, than peace. And so I think sort of a, both, both news values and the sense of an unrepresentative sample of people feed into the perceptions. And finally, and this is something Gary, I think, is going to talk about more, there's a difference between people's choices and their evaluations and their votes. But what I'm saying here is if you look at how, what people actually think, their positions, they're relatively centrist, and they don't differ that much. Uh, there's not that much conflict. And anyway, when you look at how they vote, of course, there's a lot more. And the explanation for that is it's the positions and the actions of the candidates they're choosing between and the candidates they're evaluating. For example, there was a, a study published just recently on the role of the Iraq war issue in the 2004 voting. And uh, Philip Klinkner uh, wrote this article. And what he found was if you looked at Republicans and Democrats' views on the, the goals of American foreign policy, uh, spread human rights, uh, American national interests, these sorts of things, Republicans and Democrats differed, but not by much. Uh, he found if you looked at the means by which policy should be carried out, uh, economic means, uh, diplomacy, military means, again, differences, but not all that big. He looked at values like patriotism and so forth. He looked at issues like defense spending. Again, the pattern was simply always differences, but not that big. And then he asked about Bush's performance, and it's huge. And so the implication is it's not so much people's underlying positions, it's the, their attitude toward what's being done and the positions that are being taken. So I think all of these things have, have sort of accumulated to, to produce an image of a country that's way more polarized than it is. Now, the last elections uh, I felt very good about, um, not necessarily for a partisan outcome, but because it seemed to be consistent with what we've been arguing. And there have been columns written with titles like The Revenge of the Moderates and The Center Strikes Back. And, and I think the, the analyses that will be done are going to show it was a lot more complicated than that. I think there were probably lots of things going on in the election, but clearly there were big swings among categories of moderate centrist Americans that had a lot to do with the Republican losses of both chambers of Congress. And at the very least, I think we should see an end to this glorification of the base, uh, this notion that there is no middle, there are no floating voters, there are no split ticket voters, that all you do is fire up the base now. I think we've seen the limits of that strategy, both as a governing strategy where you become a prisoner to the base and as an electoral strategy when the base just isn't enough if anything goes against you. And I think here in California, uh, just to put a punctuation mark on that, uh, here we had Arnold Schwarzenegger in a deep blue state, easily winning re-election, and more than 750,000 Californians voted for Schwarzenegger, went one line voter on, lower on the ballot and said, but I won't vote for McClintock. And so people will vote differently, they'll evaluate differently based on the choices they offer. Now I'd like to spend a last couple of minutes on a more personal note, and that is fleshing out the historical record a little bit. Um, my colleague on the right here, John Harris, is the author of a new book uh, with Mark Halperin. It's a much bigger book than our book, and it's a lot more expensive, and I'm sure he's going to sell a lot more copies than we're going to sell. Uh, but the point here is I'm in it. Now, on page 264, uh, I'd like to read you. Uh, um, 
Even as Rove was using lessons from the past to inform the first term of Bush's presidency, he was setting up a system to advance the president's reelection. In 2001, Rove formed a team of professors to produce historical studies and then matched the scholars up with Republican National Committee officials. The group was made up of that rarest of commodities, academics who were willing to help Bush get reelected. Participants included, and there's a long list, finishing with Ann Morris Fiorina of Stanford. Uh, I was, when I read that, I had the same sort of feeling that Mark Twain uh, mentions when he talks about being tarred and feathered and ridden out of town in a reel. Uh, you recall he says that uh, if it weren't for the honor and glory of the experience, he'd just as soon walk. And on the one hand, I didn't want to, I don't want to deny a, you know, a reputable insider who says I might have actually had an impact on a presidential election, given that I've been irrelevant for nearly all my life. Um, but on the other hand, I, again, to quote or to paraphrase Twain, reports of my role are greatly exaggerated. The, uh, the, what actually happened here was one of our former McClatchy participants, Darren Shaw, did set up this, uh, this group called the Academic Advisory Council. And the idea was to, um, to have political scientists or experts in public opinion and voting campaigns and so forth come in and give somewhat bigger talks to the Republican National Committee that people who were involved in the day-to-day -day campaigning needed some broader picture. And I, I think Darren's inspiration was simply the fact that when you look out over the audience at this meeting, uh, all the staff of the Republican National Committee are about 21 years old that you realize the kids are really running uh, the, the place. And um, I was invited to the third meeting. I went, I had a good time, I gave a talk, and they never invited me back. And uh, I, I thought there were two possibilities. I, I thought the first possibility is they didn't have any more meetings, but I read in the book that, in fact, there were a lot more meetings after the one they went to. So the alternative possibility is they didn't like what I had to say. And uh, further evidence for that uh, came about a year ago. Um, George Schultz uh, spends a good bit of time at Stanford. Mr. Schultz was Secretary of State under Ronald Reagan, but earlier he was Secretary of the Treasurer and Secretary of Labor uh, under Richard Nixon. And Nixon was an avowed practitioner of centrist politics. His writings abound in comments about needing to capture the center and go for the center. And Secretary Schultz was quite sympathetic to the, uh, the argument of the book. And uh, he told me, he stopped in, and he said he had been to Washington the previous week, and he'd given a copy of the book to the president and said, Mr. President, you should read this. And the president turned, gave it to Karl Rove and said, you read this and give it back to me. Uh, and in due time, I did, in fact, get a letter from Karl Rove, uh, handwritten, uh, quibbling with a lot of the technical details, but the bottom line was he didn't like it. And uh, so the first possibility, the second possibility that they didn't like what I had to say, I think, is, is the true one. And so from my standpoint, I think I tried to speak truth to power as I knew it, but power didn't listen. <laughs> Well, no, I'm not uh, surprised, actually, that you got a, uh, the handwritten note uh, from Karl Rowe. Uh, one of the things that's not uh, uh, appreciated by him, uh, about him in, in the popular image of him as the, the sort of consummate uh, you know, political hack is that he is, does have a rather academic streak and, uh, and reads the literature and, in fact, has uh, done a lot of study himself. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, one of the noteworthy things about this administration uh, uh, to me is the number of people who have looked at politics as a, a kind of an academic discipline. There's Karl Rove, you know, Vice President Cheney himself was a, did graduate work in, in political science, and a number of other people in the administration who come out of the world of political science. You could say, actually, this is the most sort of political science 
uh, uh, oriented administration that we've had in modern American history. So I would say you as a political scientist and all, all the rest of you as political scientists should be quite proud of your achievement. Uh, <laughs> we, we now see what happens uh, when political scientists uh, 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 run the country. Uh, I wrote the book, uh, uh, The Way to Win, with Mark Halperin. Uh, uh, the book took shape uh, immediately following the uh, uh, 2004 uh, election. In, we were in Little Rock uh, just a couple weeks after the uh, Bush had won re-election, and uh, we were at the dedication of the Clinton Library. Um, and there was this uh, very... Uh, or vivid scene up on the stage. Uh, you know, the current president and the ex-presidents were there, and we you know, it was a miserable day, pouring rain, cold, uh, but nonetheless, this very evocative scene. You know, you've got had President 41, uh, uh, George H.W. Bush, up there. You had Bill Clinton. Uh, you had the current president, uh, uh, 43, uh, and, and then also up there on the stage, uh, uh, Hillary Clinton. And we puzzled on the fact that you know, here's the United States is really sort of you know, the most egalitarian uh, uh, culture, uh, and that's how we think of our uh, democracy. But you know, nonetheless, we've got this kind of dynastic rhythm uh, to our politics. Where Bush, Clinton, eight years of Bush, and we believed you know, as well positioned as anybody uh, to, to be the next president, uh, Hillary Clinton. Um, and we had this, we set out with ourselves this mission of trying to ponder why that is, uh, why that's so. I should say, incidentally, I have this sort of nightmare vision of my career when it's 2032 and I'm out there on the campaign trail covering Chelsea Clinton's uh, <laughs> run for president against George P. Bush. Uh, uh, I think at that point I will uh, indeed apply for my. Uh, uh, Stanford University Fellowship uh, and, and come join you because uh, I'll be done at that point. Um, the conclusion we reach in this book is that uh, the, this sort of dynastic pattern is uh, not a fluke uh, and it's not a historical accident. That there's a reason that these two families have uh, dominated politics and uh, uh, there's specific tangible things uh, that they know about how modern American politics works. And much of what they know, they've learned from watching uh, one another and, and uh, drawing lessons uh, uh, from the other family, uh, both positive lessons, things that they emulate, uh, and, uh, and negative lessons, uh, things that they determine not to do by watching, uh, watching the other people. That's the, the theme of this book. It's really a book about political strategy, and, and therefore the two main characters in it are Bill Clinton himself, uh, since he was uh, preeminently the, the, the best strategist in his own circle, uh, and then also Karl Rove, uh, uh, Moe's friend uh, uh, from so many years. Um, <laughs> Uh, our point in, in focusing on Rove is not that he is the, the brains behind the operation. Um, we think that's a caricature, uh, but that we, uh, within the Bush enterprise, it is uh, Rove's job uh, preeminently to think about uh, presidential campaign strategy. And we think these two people, uh, uh, Bill Clinton and Karl Rove, uh, have instructive careers. They know certain things about the way to win. Uh, yes, they've had setbacks, uh, but they understand this, uh, this game 
better than, than uh, uh, any people we've come across and that there are specific lessons there to be learned about it. One of the interesting places in which to uh, look at this dynamic of how the Clintons and the Bushes uh, uh, approach uh, approach politics is on this subject that we're talking about tonight, polarization. Um, you know, there's been much uh, written about it uh, academically, much written about it uh, journalistically. Uh, it's also, th th there's uh, uh, a great deal of relevance to this debate uh, or discussion that we're having up here on the question of political strategy. How do you go about the business of winning elections and uh, governing uh, once you do win. Uh, and Mo hinted at, uh, you know, one aspect of this. When with Bill Clinton, we associate him as somebody who was organized uh, obsessively around uh, uh, attracting swing voters. Uh, um, and with, with George W. Bush, you know, there's, there's been much written about his emphasis on the base. When you put it that way, it's, a, I think, a little too pedestrian and doesn't give... Uh, uh, adequate due to the theories that are underneath uh, these two political models, the, 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 the swing voters versus the base. In fact, I think both, Bill, uh, both brands of politics are, are larger and more coherent than this. Uh, and in the book we call, the, we divide them up to Clinton, Clinton politics, which comes from a certain set of assumptions uh, about uh, polarization and how to, to govern in an era of polarization, and Bush politics. Bill Clinton, of course, is the primary author of of Clinton politics, Karl Rove is the, the primary author of Bush politics. And one way to illuminate the difference is uh, to look at the different answers that the, these two men would give to this question that we're pondering tonight. Why is American politics so angry and divided? Uh, we had extensive uh, interviews for the book with Karl Rove, and we had one long uh, interview uh, with Bill Clinton up in Chappaqua, New York. Uh, and indeed, in the course of these, uh, these conversations, we put this question to both of them. You, and when you do, you get much different answers. If you ask Bill Clinton, how come American politics is so angry and divided? How come we're polarized? Uh, he will uh, say something like this, and I'm paraphrasing. Look, Americans, just as, as Mo says, are not uh, really so divided. Uh, Americans were divided in the 60s and 70s over some very fundamental questions. It appears as a period of great upheaval. Uh, they were divided over the Vietnam War. They were divided over Watergate. Uh, more profoundly, they were uh, uh, divided uh, by the civil rights uh, movement uh, and by the sort of large cultural changes in the uh, uh, in the role of sexes. Uh, and uh, uh, issues of sexual equality and sexual freedom. But that was a generation or more ago. And in the years since, most Americans in their individual lives have reached a sort of comfortable place uh, about these large questions. They're not, uh, as Mo argues, they're not fundamentally at war. They have uh, 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 values that work for them. And fundamentally, what they want out of their politics is to be unified. They, they, they want a national consensus, and they're looking uh, for political leaders who will give them that, uh, who will not wage ideological war, but will solve specific, tangible problems in a pragmatic way. Uh, and by this theory, uh, the reason politics is so angry and divided, Bill Clinton would say, is that in fact, the opposition, he, he blames this almost entirely on Republicans, has been very skillful at finding those isolated places where there isn't uh, 
consensus where there still are inflamed areas and manipulating those and exploiting them and in fact manufacturing polarization. Uh, the, the classic issue uh, uh, to, to Clinton's mind on this would be an issue like uh, gay marriage uh, and, and they will use that to advantage or uh, gun control. Uh, they will use that to advantage to create uh, division because they believe it works uh, for them. If you believe what Bill Clinton believes, the fundamental challenge of political strategy then has got to be to, to transcend these sort of acrimonious partisan disputes, find that center that authentically does exist at the level of say 60 or 70 percent of the people, claim it, defend it, and then cast your opponents as an extreme minority outside the, the consensus. Uh, uh, to pursue that brand of politics necessarily means sometimes uh, 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 blurring differences, softening the edges on, uh, on uh, ideological disputes. Uh, but the reward for doing so is that in fact you can overcome these divisions and you can uh, 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 create you can own as a politician a national consensus. In fact, Bill Clinton did manage something like this. Uh, you'll recall that uh, uh, you know, during the Lewinsky scandal, uh, he regularly had uh, not personal approval ratings, but job approval ratings of some 60, 70 percent. You know, recall you know, within a few weeks after the, uh, the scandal broke, uh, his approval rating went up. It was nearly 70 percent in the Washington Post ABC poll. Uh, Jay Leno joked that Bill Clinton was doing so well he's decided to start dating again. <laughs> From Bill Clinton's brand of uh, Bill Clinton's notions about this question of our Americans divided and polarized flows a certain brand of politics. If you ask Karl Rove, as we did, the same question, why are Americans so, so divided? Uh, why is politics so divided? He'd say, look, these divisions are not artificial. Moreover, they're not at the margins. They're at fundamental central questions. Politics is angry because people fundamentally disagree about important values. Um, you know, he would put in this list obviously uh, cultural issues. Oh, he believes that a large uh, that, that a, a large number and probably a, ma a majority of people feel estranged from the uh, the, the popular culture uh, and, and the, the coarseness and secularism of it. Uh, national security, which we in, in journalism tend to think of as more of the province of, of uh, policy wonks, that it's a technical issue he would say it's fundamentally a values issue, particularly in the wake of 9-11. Of and Americans are authentically divided, closely divided, but genuinely divided uh, over issues of values. What's the, the appropriate uh, balance between force and persuasion as America uh, 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 confronts a hostile and, and violent uh, uh, planet? National security is a values issue, and people are divided. If you believe that, that these, these divisions aren't manufactured, but they're authentic, another brand of, of political strategy flows from that, in which the, the aim is not to blur differences, but to clarify them and make sure that you're on the winning side of that divide. If you're trying to understand decisions that Bush has made these past six years, I don't think you can ever go wrong by uh, remembering the contempt with which they held Bill Clinton. 
uh, not his personal behavior, but his political strategy. They said, look, Bill Clinton pursued high approval ratings and did it at the expense of a consequential uh, presidency. Who cares if you've got 65 or 70 percent approval ratings if you're not using that to achieve large things? It is true that the, the, the Bush administration came in with, uh, I believe, with a uh, not just sort of pursuit of power for its own sake, but uh, pursuit of power of some very powerful ideas that they believed in. And, and they were determined not to have a Clinton-style presidency. Uh, they believe that uh, history is not made by unifying presidents. Most presidents only look like unifiers in retrospect. At the time, the most important presidents are dividers. And they were willing, for their own purposes, to divide the country uh, because they believed that was the way uh, to affect, uh, uh, affect important long-term change. Uh, from, Bush's, from Rove's notion of why we're so divided, again, flows a very different uh, uh, brand of political strategy. And yes, it's partly about the base and partly about swing voters, but it's much more fundamentally about this question of uh, sort of the direction and composition of the country. Now the question in the wake of uh, uh, the election is who has got the, uh, the better end of that argument. When we started out on this book in uh, November of 2004, uh, everybody really believed that uh, Bush and Rove had the better end of that argument. Uh, there was a, a popular belief that uh, they were going to lose, and uh, certainly within my journalistic set, uh, and, and I think within the larger community of operatives, and in fact they showed incredible power of the strategy. They were willing to divide and indeed uh, uh, won a narrow victory, but nonetheless a, an emphatic one. Uh, in democratic circles, and we picked this up, uh, uh, you know, in fact, at this very event, uh, the, the library dedication that I mentioned, Rove was there, and you could, everybody was talking about Rove. He would walk through the crowd, and it was like he was a rock star. Bill Clinton himself was not immune from it. Uh, you know, he, he later told us, or Rove told us, rather, uh, so did Clinton, for that matter, that the, he saw Rove across the... Uh, this VIP tent, Bill Clinton made a beeline for him and said, look, we've got to get together and talk about politics. You know, one strategist to another. What you did was an amazing, was amazing. I want to talk to you. Uh, uh, I, want you to, I want us to sit down and talk about politics. Democrats believe their problem was they didn't have their own version of Karl Rove. Two years later, things look different. Uh, it uh, seems clear to me that uh, Clinton has the better end of this argument. Uh, there are times when people are, uh, are, are divided, but I think fundamentally the, the, the evidence, at least lately, is that uh, um, most Americans don't want to lead politics as a holy war. Uh, they do indeed want, uh, uh, above all, uh, to see politics producing pragmatic solutions. I think the, the great failure of Bush politics is that, that's been harnessed to policy failures, most of all in Iraq. Um, that does leave open the question that perhaps Rove's theories would have been right had they been harnessed to policy success. Uh, you know, uh, if in fact Iraq had been a success, uh, this long-term project that, that, that Bush and Rove had of sort of reordering American politics might well have come to fruition and then we would argue that, uh, that perhaps Rove knew what he was talking about. 
the problem with a rove brand of politics is that it leaves no margin for error. If you have a political strategy that is based on winning 50.0001% uh, of the vote by getting that group so inflamed, uh, you also get 49.999% of the, the country equally inflamed uh, against you, and that is a dangerous strategy. Uh, I think you know there's no question, even if, uh, as Mo says, that the 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 country is fundamentally divided over basic questions. It was a brand of politics that, at least in the political realm, had people angrily divided against each other in authentic ways. Uh, and it seems to me that uh, if we look at the situation that Bush finds himself in, the balance of his presidency, uh, that does not look like a, a, a promising model for uh, long-term success. Uh, thank, thank you for inviting me, uh, Shanto. I'm happy to be here. I actually took a course in this very room 40 years ago. When I was a Stanford undergraduate, I was taking a course in art history, which met right after lunch. And they would turn the lights down so they could see the slides of the, of the paintings. And I, I guarantee you there are far many more men, uh, awake people in the room right now than there were in my art history course by the end of the, end of the hour. I try to keep that record from repeating itself uh, in this room tonight. Um, my, my take on this comes from a slightly different direction from, from Mo's. We, our arguments have intersected in various ways. Uh, I came across, uh, in, got into seriously into this dis, uh, examining the degree of polarization in the U.S. because I noticed that um, looking at data on presidential approval, that it looked like George Bush was different from previous presidents. And so I went back and I gathered the data. And we have data going back to actually to Truman, a little bit from Roosevelt, looking at partisan differences in evaluations of president, standard kind of job approval question, do you approve of the way the president's doing his job? And lo and behold, if you look at the data for Bush, they're really quite remarkable. He starts out his presidency with the widest partisan gap in evaluations of any newly elected president in history. Uh, after 9-11, it shrinks down to the narrowest gap because everybody rallies to him. He's got 85, 84% approval among Democrats, 99% approval among Republicans, very high. The gap is very narrow. 18 months after that, he's back to a gap that's the largest ever recorded for any president, and he stays with a gap that wide through today. As prior to Bush, if you go back and look at the numbers for, say, Eisenhower through, uh, through Carter, the average partisan gap is around 40 percentage points. As the president's party rates the president about 40 points higher than, than, he, than the other party rates the president. Reagan, it kind of bumps up. He's a kind of a polarizing figure. It bumps up to 55 or 60 points. Get to the first Bush. He's, initially, he's a uniter. By the end of his term, it's up where Reagan was at 55, 60 points. Clinton, 55 or 60 points. He's a pretty divisive character. And of course, uh, in the uh, impeachment hearing, in the impeachment events, uh, were highly polarizing to the public. And you think, well, you know, we, we reached a peak in 1998. Here's Clinton's being impeached by a Republican Congress. You've got a conscience vote in Congress where 98% of the Republican consciences say he should impe be impeached, and 98% of the Democratic consciences say he shouldn't be impeached. But you look at the public on this, and they're 
not quite as that decisively divided, but they're pretty sharply divided too. 85% of the Democrats don't want him impeached, about two-thirds of the Republicans do. I think we've hit it. We've, we've reached the maximum on, on, on polarization, on kind of at least on presidents, presidential issues. And when George Bush is running for election in 2000, he says, I want to be a uniter, not a divider. I want to get beyond the, 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 the partisan conflicts of the previous administration. Um, and uh, it look, you know, you would say, well, yeah, it shouldn't be too hard to do better than that. Um, as it turns out, uh, over the last three years or so, uh, the gap for um, Bush has averaged in 70 to 75 percentage points. And you know, talking the arithmetic here allows you to go up to 100, from zero, 100 on one side and zero on the other. So you get up to 70, 75 points. You've got a really big division between partisans. And that was uh, kind of the driving um, observation that made me kind of look at other kinds of data and try to figure out why Bush had become the most polarizing president we've ever had, at least since we've been measuring this uh, 70 years. Well, the first thing that I came up with was to look at overall polarization in American politics over the past 30 or 40 years. As Bush comes in at the end of a period of increase, clearly an increasing polarization at the elite level, and I would argue uh, a little bit more vigorously than Mo, and increasing partisan differences at the, uh, at, the or, uh, at the level of mass voters as well. That is the sorting of uh, ideologues into the right party, the kind of association with partisanship and ideology goes way up over this time. There really has been a, an increasing, I mean, the, certainly the elites have moved a lot further apart than ordinary people have, but ordinary people have been moving in the same direction. And if you ask them, you know, uh, how do you, where do you place yourself? Where do you place your own party? There, there's been no change in that. What's changed is where they place the other party. That is, their, their perception of, of polarization is those other guys have moved away from me and become too extreme. Um, so in that sense, there's, there, this has been going on at the mass level as well. So Bush comes in at, at, after at least three decades of trends in that direction. That's number one. Number two, you remember how he got to be president. Uh, this was through Florida, five weeks of brouhaha over who was the legitimate winner. In that e event, uh, ordinary people broke very decisively along party lines as to whether they, who they thought the legitimate winner was. You had Republicans from the get-go saying it was Bush and staying at that at 90% for the next four years. Democrats from the get-go saying, no, it wasn't, like 70%, 75%, and them staying at the same level for the next four years. That is. When the, when the uh, 2004 election comes around, you still have Democrats thinking he wasn't elected legitimately. That's number two. Number three, and I think, is, is the Rove strategy. That is, Bush gets elected in an election to tie, actually loses the popular vote, wins the electoral vote. The Senate is tied 50-50. The House is very closely divided. And everybody's saying, well, he got, he's got to govern toward the center. He's got to have a coalition government. He ought to bring some Democrats into the Congress. Of course, he doesn't do anything of the kind. What he does is say, we, we won, okay, we have this Republican, conservative Republican agenda, we're going to do it. Uh, and if you look at the, the policy output of his administration before 9-11 and after 9-11, except for leave no child behind and, and, the, and the prescription drug benefit, everything else is pretty much the conservative Republican wish list on taxes, regulation, um, uh, anything having to do with social issues and so forth. It's, yeah, it's operating like a conservative Republican. In an evenly divided country, that's going to be polarizing. So that's three. Come to number four, and this is the big one. And of course, it's the war in Iraq. Uh, partisan divisions on the war in Iraq are astonishing. This is another thing that got me into this project. If you look at, uh, go, go back and look at how people divided up by party on Korea. Okay, eh, partisan differences of around 
12, 10, 12 percentage points. You look at partisan differences on Vietnam. This is our most divisive war. Remember, we were right on this campus. We were rioting in the streets and raising hell because of the war in Vietnam. Partisan differences on the average of five percentage points. Okay, before Nixon, while Johnson was president, the Democrats were a little more supportive than Republicans by about five points. There's a scissors crossing when Nixon takes over, and then Republicans are a little more supportive by about five points, but partisan differences are almost uh, invisible. Look at other things like uh, the first Gulf War, about 20 points. Kosovo, about 10 points. Afghanistan, about 10 points. You get to the Iraq War, and for the last, after the first heady moments of mission accomplished, it grew to about 60 points, 55 to 60 point differences between Republicans and Democrats in their support for the war. And that's where it is today. It's in the 50s. So uniquely among all the major military, U.S. military engagements since World War II, and of course including World War II, this is a war that has divided the country along party lines. Uh, and the association of Bush with the war is very, very tight. Uh, and so one of the obvious reasons why uh, he's been such a polarizing president as he got us into this war, which is also a polarizing war, uh, in which approval of the president and the war coincide about 85% of the time in polls. Um, why was the war so polarizing? Well, again, we get a circular, argu circular argument. People were prepared to be divided about Bush. I mean, he had his supporters and his opponents before the war. Uh, but I think more, more to the uh, point was that the war was a, a voluntary war. It was not a war that was thrust upon us. It was a war where um, uh, the premises uh, with which we went into it turned out to be wrong and were fairly quickly shown to be wrong. Uh, when they were shown to be wrong, um, Dem Democrats and independents who had supported the war because they thought there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, because they thought there was an Al-Qaeda connection, a 9-11 connection with Saddam Hussein, uh, once they became disabused of these notions, um, stopped supporting the war. Ordinary Republicans did not. They were happy to accept the new justifications that the war, um, uh, that were proffered by the administration for the war. And more to the point, and, and the stuff that really, the data that continues to blow me away, is that there remain to this moment very wide perceptual differences, differences in, in beliefs between Republicans and Democrats on everything having to do with the war, including its premises. I mean, as of 9-11, uh, the fifth anniversary of 9-11, you could still get 45% of the Republicans saying that Saddam Hussein was involved. The administration doesn't claim this anymore. Nobody, no serious person claims it anymore. 45, 50% of the Republicans still think so. About half, half that many Democrats. So there's a partisan gap on that. And the question of did Saddam Hussein have weapons of mass destruction? As of last... The, uh, was it March, May, the last poll I saw on this, 80% of the Republicans said yes, had weapons of mass disruption when we invaded. Uh, Democrats, about 30%. Okay, so you have massive differences in perceptions of the reality of the war that feed into massive differences in support for the war uh, and, and beliefs about it. You get equally massive differences in, uh, or almost as big a differences, in perceptions of how things are going. Um, the, the, six months ago, you could get 70% you know, of the Republicans, 75% to say the war was going well or very well, about 20% of the Democrats. Now those numbers have fallen off, but you still have about 60% of the Republicans out there saying that the war is going well or very well. Uh, and you have uh, approximately you know, 
12, 15% of the Democrats saying the same thing. So any question that has to do with, Viet, with the Iraq war generates very wide differences in partisan responses, not simply an evaluation of the war, but an evaluation of the reality of what's going on there, questions about whether this is part of the war on terrorism or separate from the war on terrorism. However you want to propose those questions, you get very, very large uh, partisan gaps uh, between Republicans and Democrats. Um, so it's, it's uh, large partisan differences in evaluation, certainly with anything touching on George W. Bush, large partisan evaluations and perceptions of reality, not just on the war in Iraq, but on the economy, for example. You get 40, 45 point differences between Republicans and Democrats in whether they think the economy is going well or very well or poorly or very poorly. It's just that, that kind of gap. A huge partisan gap. It's simply on perceptions of how the economy is going. Um, uh, you have uh, partisan differences in beliefs um, and then, then there are a range of, of kind of policies in which you get quite large partisan differences as well, including Pache uh, Mo, uh, abortion, uh, and, and kinds of social issues. You get you know, 30, 35, 40 point differences on stem cell research, uh, on, uh, depending on how you ask the question, whether you're pro-choice, pro consider yourself pro-choice, pro-life, et cetera. So at least with regard to a focus on this administration, the issues that it touches on, the major issues it's involved with, the country looks very polarized indeed. Uh, now, the interesting thing about this polarization, you talk about the Republican position and the Democratic position, what about the independents? Well, in virtually all of these um, measures, the independents are about two-thirds of the way toward the Democrats. The gap between the Republicans and the Democrats, they're, they're uh, uh, two-thirds of the way between the Republicans and the Democrats toward the Democrats. And that, that has a lot to do with the outcome of the recent midterm election. Uh, that is, the independents were much closer to the Democrats in opinions on the things that matter to them, particularly the war. And because of that, they uh, voted in unusual numbers for Democratic candidates for the House, uh, for, the, for the House and Senate. And if you look at the, the if you believe exit polls, which is not necessarily a good thing, um, uh, that was they were they were sort of half of the half of the swing to the Democrats was accounted to by about a quarter of the population made up of the independents connected with this. Uh, with these divisions on Bush. Now, uh, this does not mean that people are polarized about everything. And as Mo, Mo points out, uh, having drawn from my research, uh, Bush is by far the most polarizing figure on the, on the political landscape. He's polarizing, just as polarizing if you look at state level data on approval of Bush, approval of um, the senator, approval of the governor. Bush is just about as polarizing at the statewide level as he is nationally. That is, the average gap is maybe 60 points instead of 70, but it's still pretty large. That is simply not true of many senators and many, many governors. Among senators, you could, though, you can you can kind of figure, you can predict who's going to be the polarizing senator. The most polarizing senators are the ones who are most intimately connected with national politics, the ones that that uh, um, are identified with. There are people like Hillary Clinton. John Kerry, uh, uh, Ted Kennedy, uh, Bill Frist, uh, people who are associated with their national party leadership and their national party positions are polarizing figures. Those who uh, you know, deal in pork and, and uh, services for, the, for their constituents or who are moderates uh, within their, within their um, caucus uh, tend to be far less polarizing. So there is a high level of vari variance that can go on on this. But the fundamental fact remains that 
national the focus of national politics today remains highly polarized. Now, the, on, on this question of the, whether the Roe or uh, whether the, the Roe strategy or the Clinton strategy was vindicated by 2006, um, it's not clear. Uh, if you look at if, again, if you believe the exit polls, party line voting in 2006 was just as high as it was in 2004 and 2002. The difference being that the Democrats were this year a couple of points more loyal to their party than Republicans in the, in the past years. The Republicans were a couple of points more loyal to their party than the Democrats, but both of them were above 90% in terms of party consistency in their declared vote. That's, that's a high level of, of, of partisan alignment and voting um, in the national data going back 40 years. 2004 was the most, had the highest level of party line voting of any election in that period. We don't know about 2006 yet from those data. On the other hand, that fairly small segment in the middle that swings, there may not be very many of them, but they can be decisive if they all move pretty decisively in the same direction. And that in, in, in indeed happened in this election and, uh, and gave, gave, uh, gave Congress to the Democrats. Um, so I will, I, I will finish there as a, a kind of conceding to Mo that uh, not, not everything is polarized, but if you look at uh, at least this administration, how it's conducted itself, the kind of politics that it's generated, and the public response to what it's seen, uh, it has uh, divided us to a remarkable degree. I mean, this is the data, the, one of the, uh, one, one datum. Prior to Bush, the lowest approval rating any president ever got from the other party, from the, out, from the, the opposing party, was Richard Nixon and the 11% approval rating he got for, uh, from Democrats just before he resigned because of Watergate. Okay, You think 11% is pretty low. Bush has been below that many times. He's gone as low as 4% approval among Democrats. And when I mentioned that to a Democratic friend of mine, Alan Abramowitz, he said, who are those 4%? <laughs> so so it, that was kind of emblematic of, of the, at the same time, he's at 4% among Democrats. In that same poll, he's at about 80% among Republicans. So um, it would be hard to argue that at least at one level, we're not, uh, if not polarized, certainly very sharp, white, sharply divided by party on, uh, on the, uh, the current leadership of our country. Well, I want, I want to thank uh, all three participants, uh, not only for making some extremely uh, thought-provoking uh, 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 comments and, and presentations, but more importantly, uh, for also sticking to their time limit. Uh, it's quite unusual, in a, particularly uh, among ap academics, certainly, uh, for time constraints to be uh, taken seriously. But So we've got plenty of time for Q&A. And I need to ask uh, anyone in the audience who wants to uh, ask a question to walk up to the two mics that we've got uh, on both aisles and uh, feel free to, to address your question to, to any of the uh, panelists. Um, my question's for Gary Jacobson. Um, I was wondering if you couldn't explain um, how uh, the evaluations of presidents have become polarized by taking what um, Professor Fiorina has asserted, that our elites are becoming more polarized, so it would make sense that voters' um, uh, voters' evaluations of them are also becoming more polarized. 
I don't disagree with that with most, but is this not, is this live? I don't agree with, uh, disagree with Mo on that. I think, I think that the certainly elite polarization makes it easier for voters to polarize. But what struck me about, uh, especially about the Iraq war, um, ordinary Democrats seem to be disillusioned about the war sooner than Democratic leaders. You really didn't get a kind of Democrat, I mean, most, all, the main, all the main Democrats running for president in 2004, except for Howard Dean, who wasn't in the Senate, either supported the war initially by the vote, uh, or in the case of Graham, who was running, said it wasn't, he, he didn't, he opposed the resolution because it wasn't strong enough when going to war. So they were all kind of associated with it. It wasn't until Howard Dean kind of alerted the rest of the candidates that the war wasn't terribly popular among Democrats that you got Kerry kind of starting to carry the, carry the torch for the war. So I, I got a sense in this case of the elites kind of following the followers. Got exactly the same sense in, during the impeachment hearings, uh, the impeachment events in 1998. You know, you had the stories of all the senators, uh, Democratic senators running around with speeches in their pockets calling for Clinton's resignation that they were about to get as soon as public support for him collapsed. And, it, and there are polls every day because every polling outfit wanted to catch the pivotal moment when Clinton's support evaporates. It doesn't. Uh, among Democrats, it's just it's flat, it's flat line. It stays there. They never peel off. And eventually, the Democratic leaders come around to saying, well, we're, we're opposing impeachment too. So I don't think you can say it's simply an elite phenomenon because at least there's some evidence that elites have, um, have responded more to their followers uh, than, than vice versa. And in, in the case of Bush, I think one of the reasons that he got so much support from Republicans, uh, Republican elites, is because his support among the Republican base was so incredibly solid that going against Bush was just suicidal for them, and they, and, and, and they didn't. Feel free to weigh in. Yeah, can I, uh, Gary, my recollection is that the uh, elites followed the followers in Vietnam, too that there were radical professors and long-haired protesters, you know, protesting from 65, 66 onward. But it wasn't until, you didn't see the guys like Tip O'Neill turning until their Irish working class constituents said, we're not winning and why are we over there? I think there's a general sense in which the American people are less internationalist than politically elites. And so even the democratic elites will sort of stay with the international goal longer than ordinary people who sort of, they want to real, do a real cost-benefit calculation. I, I agree that Iraq is this, sort of, uh, it's just a special case. And I think the reason this was sort of so much disillusionment is it was a war based on trust. That, you know, that at, at the time we had no evidence, we had very little data, and 3,000 people had just been killed, there seemed to be a real threat. And so when the administration said they have weapons of mass destruction, there may have been connections, people said, okay, we'll have to do it. And once those premises were taken away, I think there was a sense of violation of trust on the part of a lot of people who ordinarily wouldn't have been for it. And I mean, had, had Bush gone on TV and said, look, we don't have any evidence that Hussein had any connection to al-Qaeda. We don't have any evidence, any strong evidence that they have weapons of mass destruction, but it's a bestial regime and we're going to sacrifice 3,000 Americans to take it out. American people would have said, sorry, we're not on board with this. That, that, I, think, I think that's the sense in which the, the, the real benefits as far as most Americans were concerned, just not most Americans, Democrats at least, evaporated when it was realized that trust had been violated. But it, wasn't, I think all, those what, but it wasn't all Americans because... No, it was Democrats. Right, yeah, no, right now, yeah. right now yeah. over the last year, 80% of the Democrats think mm -hmm. that the Bush administration deliberately misled us into war. 15% yeah. of the Republicans mm -hmm. think that same no, thing. Right. There's, a, yeah. there's a gap of 65 points between yeah. the two. 
done. That's a good question. Well, I was just going to say, I think the, the premises, as Gary pointed out, were, were taken out relatively early, but the uh, support for the war has been a steadily, steady decline downward. I do think that the uh, uh, people are making a judgment about the efficacy of the effort. Is it working? And is the cost worth it? Uh, more than a backward-looking uh, debate over, you know, what's already pretty well been established that the, the, the premises were not either intentionally or, or, or accidentally were not what Bush uh, Bush said they were. I mean, I think the reason the war is a big problem is people do not feel that it's uh, uh, that it's on any kind of reasonable trajectory to success. Okay, I think we'll, we'll alternate aisles here, and so. Yes, sir. You're up. I'll, I'll direct this to Mo, but the others may want to answer as well. Congress also isn't exactly getting stellar ratings these days. And I, I was struck as you were talking, Mo, about the things that Americans in general consider to be important. That perhaps the problem really is that Americans are disenchanted with the federal government, its ability to actually address and solve the problems that people care about day to day. I'm wondering if any of your study and analysis has uh, looked at it from that standpoint, that the federal government, whether it's Republican or Democratic, is just simply dysfunctional when it comes to meeting the needs that Americans truly care about, and consequently there's a uh, negative rating as a result. That's my sense, but I, I honestly haven't looked at the data closely enough to want to give you a precise answer. I know Gary mentioned Alan Abramowitz. Uh, George Will commented that the approval rate for Congress is 22 percent. He asked the same question. He said, who are those 22 percent? <laughs> and he's talking about a Republican Congress. And uh, yeah, I think there's a, well, this goes back to the point, too, about leaving yourself no margin for error. You, you, you launch into a very polarizing agenda, a, very, a hard right agenda, which I think everyone agrees they did. And, um, you know, there's just, you know, you're, you're by definition only going to appeal to a fairly small segment of the American public, even if you carry it off. And so I think their agenda just, you know, I, I think it, you know, we, we got polarization of, of evaluations because of what they did. And the counterfactual, I wrote another paper recently called uh, A Divider, Not a Uniter, Did It Have to Be, taking off on, on Gary's title. And the, the counterfactual is supposing after 9-11, Bush had gone on TV and said, not I'm a war president, but I'm a national unity president, that we are involved in a long, costly war, we can't afford any more tax cuts, we have to try to uh, achieve greater energy independence by launching into alternative fuels. Uh, we have never, we don't have any evidence that Hussein is involved in this, so no Iraq war. Um, you, know, we, you know, you don't sort of stick your thumb in the uh, eyes of some of the interest groups like the environmentalists by, you know, uh, drilling in Anwar. And you say, look, there are a lot of social questions, but we can't afford to divide ourselves on those questions. We're going to allow civil society and local units of government to take care of those, those uh, questions. I think Bush could have been reelected easily. I think in 96, I, I think Karl Rove got Bush reelected in 2004 in spite of himself. That's my position. That they carried it off despite doing lots of things that should have let them lose. They could have, we forget, our, our political science forecasters, including Allen, were all predicting much bigger victories. Um, for a president in a time of relative peace and prosperity, the margin should have been greater. I think, um, excuse me, in, in 2000, the Bush won nearly in 2000. I think that should have been taken as evidence that maybe there was a lot of appeal to this compassionate conservative strategy. Instead, they read the wrong lesson into it, I think, and went to the, to the right. Okay, yes, sir. Uh, thank you. This is a question for all of you. Would you comment if you think America is a democracy or an oligarchy? And should the Electoral College be abolished and rely on the popular vote? No, we're, we're a 
polyarchy, according to <laughs> my, my, my uh, major guru in graduate school, Robert Dahl, as this, we're not a, uh, an egalitarian polity. There, there are clearly di major dif differences in the distribution of power. Oligarchies uh, uh, seems to me way too narrow. But you know, we're governed by, to beginning, the half, half the population that votes, the other half that doesn't vote doesn't matter. Doesn't matter, doesn't matter very much. And then within that population, uh, people who are more active, have more money, et cetera, are, are more influential. But to try to turn that into an oligarchy, I think, is, is tortures the words out of, out of context. The second part was, remind me, uh, uh, should we uh, abolish the Electoral College well, and just rely on I, the popular vote? I, I, at various times, I thought the Electoral College was really silly until Florida. <laughs> And then you, then, then you think, well, what if we had a close election where instead of worrying about ballots in a few counties in Florida, we worried about ballots in 50 states? Uh, ooh, uh, you know, we'd still be litigating. So you know, I, I think that uh, there's lots of things to be said negatively about the Electoral College. Um, we could probably succeed in having a popular, popular elected president, but, but you can certainly imagine some, some downside to it. Yeah, I always think politics, uh, we're a democracy that's quite self-correcting, that we have uh, excesses and then we find ways to remedy them. Uh, uh, I don't think our situation is especially dire at the moment uh, in, in any kind of historical context. Uh, and I don't think that there's, I don't think it calls for uh, uh, sort of radical remedies of the sort, like uh, abolishing the electoral college or, you know, concluding that the very notion of democracy is a fraud and that we're really run by a power and a power oligarchy. I just what, what don't believe it. Just a, a kind of a slightly orthogonal response to that would be that just I was at conferences last year where people are talking about how there's no more competition. That gerrymandering has rendered voters irrelevant. There's no more competition for Congress. It's all settled. Well, we had you know, more races settled uh, by a narrow 55-45 uh, margin than any election since 1948 in this last election. Suddenly, competition is back fairly dramatically, and you know, it was a classic referendum. The, the outs replaced the ins because everybody was unhappy. Enough people were unhappy with the ins to, to sweep them out. Uh, and at least in a macro sense, that's what you expected democracy to do. Just one quick comment, too. I can't resist since this is an affluent Palo Alto audience. But there are <laughs> there are critics out there who say that uh, yes, to some extent, it is a, an oligarchy of wealth, and it's not just on the Democratic or on the Republican side where they're doing things for the corporate elite, but also the Democrats have allowed themselves to be taken over by affluent middle-class lifestyle liberals who don't pay enough attention to the things that bother ordinary Americans, like health care, employment, and so forth. And Tom Edsel's new book, you know, he plays some of the blame on. Uh, Democrats for the same reason. So, and there clearly are, I think, there is some evidence that basically the influence of poorer people in the system, they have fewer of the kinds of resources that make for political system now than they did two generations ago when unions were strong, when issues were economic issues. So, Go ahead. so there are a couple of assumptions that I think um, are assumed, <laughs> obviously, uh, when these discussions are had. One is that the American public have opinions when they go into elections, and it's the job of the party to um, 
convince them that their opinions uh, best match the party's opinions. The other is that polarization is bad. Polarization is something that should be avoided at all costs. I think in my political lifetime, the lesson that's been shown is that Americans are not that polar in their political opinions. Americans want Americans to have better jobs. They want Americans to have health care. They want Americans to have a traditional marriage, which makes sense. However, the question that seems to be outstanding and the question that the Republicans seem to have gained the most ground on is where does the government, what's the government's role in moving toward these broadly agreed upon assumptions? Um, so is America going to be prosperous? Well, the Republicans seem to have come up and said Americans are going to be more prosperous if they're tax cuts and they've delivered tax cuts. Um, and then I think most notably on social issues they've delivered in trying to protect marriage. In my opinion, Democrats have really failed to engage in that debate. Democrats have tried to have the largest tent that they could have. I think this is most notably shown in Howard Dean, the head of the Democratic Party, sitting with conservative, uh, fairly conservative groups saying that the Democratic Party believes marriage is between a man and a woman, and then later realizing that's not actually in his platform. Democrats are trying really hard not to be polar. Do you think that Democrats are really losing out on the chance to engage in a debate about what the role of politics and the government really is in everyday life? And do you think that re the Republican Party really just continuously is winning by coming up with more specific answers than the Democrats have delivered um, and that, they won, that the Democrats merely won this last election because the war in Iraq and other things were obviously going wrong? Whack it back. Uh, this is relevant to, uh, I believe I was first to identify a, a psychological syndrome in Washington uh, that's called uh, very common among Democrats because I covered Clinton. A lot of my sources and whatnot are Democrats. And uh, the phenomenon is rove envy. Uh, uh, for most of the, uh, the six years from uh, you know, all my sort of Clinton sources, uh, you know, there was like the, they thought Rove and his brand of politics that you describe is, uh, uh, you know, made him the devil incarnate, but they believed on another side of their mind with equal force that what the Democrats need is their own Karl Rove. And what, what you're saying, I think it really does speak to what a lot of Democrats uh, would like, which is an unapologetic, non-defensive, brand of politics. You know, among the, the sort of the most ideological Democrats uh, and the most sort of partisan Democrats, we forget, you know, Bill Clinton for much of that time was not popular and to this day among a lot of that group he's not particularly popular and Hillary Clinton as the legatee of that brand of politics is not especially popular be precisely because it, it approaches these, you know, very emotional issues uh, in a defensive way. Um, I mean, look, what you have to remember is like the reason Bill Clinton practiced defensive politics is that for most of the last uh, generation, like this has not been a liberal country. Uh, if you, uh, um, you know, are described as a liberal for most of the time since, say, 1970 onward, that is something that you uh, uh, have to deny. If you're described as a conservative, that's something that you're typically going to embrace. Uh, Clinton's genius was that he could uh, take a country that was sort of rhetorically conservative uh, and by taking the debate out of the abstract and onto specific tangible concrete programmatic issues he could win that debate uh, so 
Like what he would say is like when you, when he hears somebody like you say, look, let's just take these issues on directly. Let's practice the kind of unapologetic, offensive uh, brand of politics that Bush practiced on on a lot of these hot button issues. This is like you know, be careful. Look at the polls that show how many people identify themselves as uh, conservatives or sort of moderate independents versus the number of people who self-identify as liberal. I don't happen to think that in the current climate that would it would work for Democrats to practice a brand of politics uh, uh, similar to what what Rove has practiced. Democrats go into every race in this country with a weight on their ankle called national defense and national security. They've just been at a disadvantage on that issue going back for a generation. McGovern, Carter, etc. And you think about Carter, or think about Clinton winning. We had a wonderful period there when we essentially had a holiday from international affairs and the domestic issues that Democrats do well on coming to the foreground. Think about the issues in 1996, school uniforms, you know, things, the kinds of things we were fighting. And the end of the Cold War was, politically speaking, one of the worst things that could have happened to the Republicans. But then once 9-11 came back and brought this issue back to the fore, again, the Democrats just labor under a, a disadvantage relative to the Republicans uh, on this issue. So I, I don't think it's a question of sort of having a coherent philosophy and polarizing. I think that, and it's also I agree with, uh, with this comment that uh, the, the word liberal became a, a dirty word in the 70s and it became because it was divorced from the older economic meanings to mean you're weak on crime, you're pro-drug, uh, pro-sexual revolution, et cetera, et cetera, all of these kinds of social issues on which the country is decidedly not liberal. And so I think simply those two sort of issues or clusters of issues can account for a lot of the problems that Democrats have had uh, in the last generation winning races. Okay, we are in fact uh, running short on time, so I'd like to request a, a certain level of succinctness in the questions. Uh, and the answers. And the answers. <laughs> <laughs> um, you very cogently discussed the causes and the reality of this unprecedented polarization. And the question in my head is, so what? I mean, how does this how does this change the United States, or what ramifications should we expect from this kind of polarization? Say the pre the next two years. Well, when, when I've given this talk at various times around the country, people often ask me, "Have we ever been this polarized before?" And my answer is always, "Well, we did have a civil war." So yeah, it, 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 could, it can get a lot worse than what we've got, and, and Mo is basically is right in, in emphasizing that, that there's a lot that unites us. This is we're, we're not on the battlefields yet. That talking about Shiites and Sunnis is insane. Um, nonetheless, we can have a lot of kind of intense partisan conflict uh, in which the public is more or less uh, involved, that is psychologically involved, if not uh, not, not deeply involved. But it doesn't prevent us from uh, from living together and not killing each other, and that's what we're, politics is all about. For me, I think it's just lost opportunities. I think we could be making some progress, solving some of the bigger problems we face: health care, Social Security reform, Medicare reform, et cetera. And nobody's doing it. I mean, are you doing it only to the extent you can sort of get an issue to put the other side of the disadvantage on? Instead, we're spending a lot of time on issues that I really think aren't as important and most people don't think are as important. Yeah. I think that's right. The other thing I would add is that, uh, uh, and Gary uh, hinted at it in his uh, uh, remarks, that it's not just simply uh, polarization over sort of important 
policy issues or important values. I think increasingly there's a, a kind of a dysfunctional element to politics. You can't have an authentic debate if there is not uh, agreed upon facts. And we're in this uh, uh, this realm, and I think it's uh, accelerated by changes in media where increasingly people are getting their news from ideologically charged sources. Um, uh, and, and the traditional old media, which you know had a mass audience, is, is losing a lot of its relative power. Uh, that's created, to my mind, a, a politics where people truly are in not just on separate sides, but almost in kind of separate factual universes. And if you're if you're not agreeing over common facts, you're not really having a debate. I mean, to my mind, an authentic debate is uh, is a disagreement about the implications. Of, of, of shared facts. If, if you don't have shared facts, you're really in a different, difficult place, and you're not likely to do what, uh, you know, after all, is the point of politics, which is to sort of constructively solve problems. Okay, so we're going to take five more questions, two from this side and three from that. Uh, thank you for having the uh, opportunity to let us ask questions. My background is I'm a registered Republican, voted for Bush in 2000. Uh, Cheney was in my freshman class. Jerry Bremer was in my class. Uh, John Ashcroft was in my class. I have a Harvard Business School degree. You'd think I'd be a conservative. I claim I'm a conservative, but I voted straight Democratic ticket last time because I'm against the war. My point is, I think you miss it by labeling us as Democrats and Republicans. I think your framing should be the main issues. The main issue is 9-11 and the war. It's, it's, uh, it's the issue about which I am passionate and most people I find that disagree with me are also passionate. I think you should therefore change your research. Gary, I think you were right when you noticed where the differences are. It's not whether you're blue or red. It's whether you're for or against this particular war and the clash of civilizations that's coming up. So I'm proposing this as a criticism for you to answer. I, wait, let me add two more pieces. One is if we were talking about Abu Ghraib, the Military Commissions Act, which destroyed habeas courses, habeas corpus and, and the, um, the posse comitas, uh, I think you'd have a bigger audience here tonight. That's the challenge. Um, perhaps, but I wouldn't be the one to talk about it. Uh, in ter in ter I think uh, your case is, your, your experience is one that's very interesting because the lineup between partisanship and support for the war is what I've been emphasizing. That is, people who think of themselves as Republicans support the war. Now, the causal arrow can go both ways. That is, people supported the war because they were Republicans and Bush was their guy, but people who decided the war was a pretty disastrous mistake might just as well decide that I, I, I thought I was a Republican, but I'm not because of this egregious error that the Republican Party has foisted on us. And that's another way for that connection to be uh, soldered, and in your case it clearly was. So I don't think this contradicts what I, the analysis I was looking at. It, it's, it begs the question, which is the interesting question from a social science point of view, is the direction of causality. And in, in my book, I argue it's, it's both ways. That is that uh, priors about Bush shaped responses to the war, uh, but responses to the war then fed back into evaluations of Bush. And clearly, in your case, they, they strongly did. Thank you. Yes, sir. Much either. Uh, okay, we do have other people waiting, so. The question I have, and I'll make it pretty quick, and I've been reading probably too much David Sirota, but I want to get maybe you guys to think about something. People party versus money party. 
we talk about polarization. Average people maybe don't have the same con uh, contributory power to a campaign as uh, corporations will. Uh, where do you think this is heading? We have Maine, uh, Arizona, New Mexico, now Massachusetts with sort of like a cleaner money uh, you know, contributions for political campaigns. I would like to see it out. That's my personal opinion. I'm sure David Sabota would like to see it out too. Where do you think this is heading and how long do you think it will get before possibly we can get a more egalitarian scenario to get corporate money out of campaigners? Because my opinion basically would be that it's really skewing almost every policy that we have toward corporate America, which is pretty much screwing average Americans. And I think that's where you get a lot of polarization as well. I don't feel empowered. I think Enron, who's out of business now, was much more empowered than I ever was. I respond to that in two ways. One, um, I have a colleague in my office next to mine, Keith Poole, who, who with his colleagues has written a book on polarization which argues that over broad historical time, the wider the discrepancy in income, the more polarization um, that's designed to control the amount of money that goes to candidates to maintain, to um, uh, equalize the system is going to run aground on this permissive interpretation of the First Amendment. And until that changes, then, uh, then there's not going to be, and I'm not sure it should, um, but until that changes, you're not going to get an egalitarian, a more, uh, or much more egalitarian uh, campaign finance system. Yes, sir. Sorry, good evening. Uh, my question is about uh, the internet and politics. I was wondering if, <clears throat> Excuse me. If some of you could comment on what impact you think the internet will have on the way that representative democracies function, and and whether the, uh, the sort of the two-way communication that the internet enables might one day be used by policymakers to directly engage people. Uh, if you could, you know, one example might be if you could imagine a future where policymakers, senators might even, you know, ask their citizens what order bill should hit the floor for votes, things like that, just as an idea. Um, just if you could maybe paint a picture of what your thoughts are on that. I think John, yeah, John, do you want that? Try it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think the internet is still very uh, uh, you know, immature in terms of its, its ultimate effect on politics, and I can see both what positive and you know, negative elements of it. And ultimately, I'm more hopeful about the positive than the negative. I do think um, that it's uh, you know, at its best. It, it's it's empowering and it's a sort of expression of, of democratic force, uh, and that's a good thing. I do think that in the near term, you know, this phenomenon I, I mentioned uh, a moment ago, where the relative decline in power of, of mass media means that people have cleaved into different sort of, kind of reality zones, uh, where, where they're we're not having a common discourse. We're having sort of narrow cast discourse among ideologues. Uh, I think the internet's been a part of that, um, uh, where it's you know, I mentioned Sirota, you know, what, take Huffington Post for example. You know, the, 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 you know, there's lots of really interesting things that uh, places for uh, debate that have grown up on the internet but in general they are congregations of like-minded people uh, therefore they're not fundamentally organized around persuasion they're organized around getting people uh, motivated and uh, you know that is not a, 
uh, a good thing for democracy. I mean, people have to be engaging with the other side rather than simply ramping up their own uh, uh, their own passions. I believe. I think one thing to keep in mind is that as all of these information sources have proliferated, all the new media, information levels have actually gone down. That is, in the country, people know less now than they did before all these things were out there. So it's the old, you lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. The, the kinds of people who would be listening in to the senators asking these kinds of questions would be either these communities of semi-fanatics or there'd be some subset of the people who watch C-SPAN, uh, which is just not a very large element of the population. Okay. What do you think the prospects are for further polarization between Americans or between the elites and the general population if a Democratic Congress passes an amnesty or de facto amnesty for 12 million or more illegal immigrants in the U.S. today? At least if you believe the polling data, a comprehensive um, immigration reform would, is a winner. People want it. They want. They want. They want to. Kind of, they're here. They want to integrate them into society in some in some fashion. They don't want to encourage more of it. Uh, they'd like. To, they'd like to stop immigration. But you've got 12 million here. You've got to do something with. It. I mean, there's a lot of common sense in, in the responses of the public opinion polls on this. It's not a polarizing issue. The Republicans tried to use it to some extent this election, and it fell flat. I mean, you got two Arizona Republicans who lost in Arizona, right on. The, you know, down where they're. they're uh, where they really do have a, 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 a sort of a, at the uh, they're at the business end of the problem, um, getting rejected by voters after having made this the center of their their campaign. So I think that one of the true opportunities for the current Congress is to in, do a comprehensive thing. Bush wants to do it. Um, some of the Republicans, like McCain, want to do it. Uh, this is one of the few things that you can look optimistically on and say, well, this may be a time we can actually do this effectively. So I don't think that's going to be a polarizing issue. It's going to alienate some small segment of the, of, uh, of the Republican Party, by and large, not entirely Republican. But overall, broadly, we're broadly popular and consensual between the parties. You want to add anything more? No, it's okay. absolutely right from the public opinion. It's not even close. I mean, enforcement plus yeah. is a winner. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you have the last, mm -hmm. the last question. Uh, <clears throat> thank you. Uh, about 60 years ago, my sense, America was pretty isolationist in its view of the world. Uh, today, 60 years later, would you have any comment if you think American citizens, are Americans today in general citizens of the world, or are they still basically, we are still basically isolationists by ignorance? <laughs> when you could be to your wife. Huh? Yeah. yeah. I, 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 I changed the terms there that you used. I don't think they're necessarily isolationists, but the attitude is sort of they wish the world's problems didn't come to us to solve. That why do we have to send our troops and our money to solve the world's problems? And there's a sense that you have to be involved, but they don't do it willingly and happily. And, you know, I mean, it's, so it's not really isolationists. It's just a wish that we didn't have to do this. It's not a role. We are not an imperial people. That's that we don't want to have an empire and run an empire. Yeah, I, I wouldn't disagree with the word of that. Um, the, I mean, we Americans are not terrible. Many Americans, probably nobody in this room would falls into this category, are just not interested in things quite uh, outside the U.S. I mean, one of the one of the shocking data when the Republicans took over the Congress in in '94, there was a, a fair number of them didn't own passports. You know, they'd never never wanted to go out of the country. That's not atypical 
of, uh, of much of the country. It's not that it, it, hostile to the rest of the world or don't recognize that there's something going on there, but a sense of uh, we're not interested, we have our lives here, that, that doesn't matter. I, I'm willing to guess that the average European knows as much about or more about what goes on in American politics than the average American. Um, it's a different way of looking at the world. They look outside themselves in a way that we don't. So there's a sense that you're right, that there is a kind of at root, not isolationism, but a kind of um, insulation, uh, willing or not, from the rest of the world. But I hear of a lot of, Ameri a lot of Europeans who are really kind of pissed off at America in general. So if, if we're saying, well, if we're really not interested, why are we, from what I hear from Europeans, what's inviting that kind of ire toward our country? Well, because with what we're doing <laughs> it has to do with, with policies and policies and styles of presenting those policies or pursuing those policies. That style yeah. could be interpreted as being imperialist. Yeah, it is. In many, in, part, in many parts of the world, it is, I'm afraid. I'm afraid we've reached the, the time allotted for the event. It's 9.30. I want to take one more opportunity to thank our panelists for a very stimulating discussion. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.